Get ready to step into scripture with Tina. Hey everyone, my name is Tina Wilson. I'm a pastor's wife and a mom of seven. Alongside my husband, Matt, I've committed my life to serving King Jesus as a church planter, an author, a Bible teacher, and an advocate for all-in family ministry. I am passionate about making Christ and His church famous, and I want to welcome you to Step Into Scripture with Tina. This podcast is designed to point people to King Jesus, and the way we're starting down that path in season one is by encouraging our listeners and viewers to commit yourself to reading the whole Word of God. And to do this, my friend Stacy and I started out by polling a large group of women in our church and asking them this question, what objection have you heard or maybe even used yourself as to why you don't have to, don't want to, don't need to read the entire Word of God? And we are taking these objections and we're answering them with Scripture, dispelling them completely. So far in this season, we've taken on the objections. It's an impossible feat to read the entire Word of God and understand it. I just can't do it. We've taken on the objection, I just don't have time. We dealt with the idea that I prefer topical studies over reading the whole text. And most recently, the objection we dispelled was, it's just monotonous or irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So today's objection is going to look a little bit different than the four previous objections we've talked about. And to bring us in, I want to ask my friend Stacy introduce yourself and bring the objection to the table for us. I'm happy to. So I'm Stacy Vines. I'm thrilled to be a part of this podcast um, to dismount or dismantle some of these objections as to why you shouldn't read the entire Bible, because really who I am is summed up in reading the Bible from start to finish. I love uh, sharing with the good things that I find about God in His Word and And so to jump into our objection today, like Tina said, this one is a little different. It's one that we're going to have to, as Christians or as Bible users, as we have defined in a previous podcast, we're going to have to approach this with a lot of humility, some understanding, and a little bit of grace, because this one might feel a little offensive because it really strikes at the heart of the validity and the Holy Spirit-inspired truth and trustworthiness of the Bible itself. So to get us started, let's open up what is this objection. This week we're going to tackle, I don't need to read the entire Bible because it was written by man. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to do a good job by the time we're done with this conversation, really getting to the heart of this objection. Uh, But before we really dive into it and dismantle it, we thought we would start with just a general overview of what is the Bible itself, the cover-to-cover actual book of the Bible that we call the Bible today. So um, we're going to use some information from Josh McDowell's book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And here are some bullet points about Scripture. Um, I love the way that we've really kind of put this uh this group of information together for you. So if you're going to write some things down, now's the time to grab something to jot this down with. So to get us started, um, a really important fact about the Bible itself is that it was written over about a 1,500-year span. That's a lot of history in one place. It was written by more than 40 authors from different places of life. We're talking about kings, peasants, prophets, uh, tax collectors, uh, people from all different stations and statures. It was written in different places, right? Like Moses in the wilderness. Some of our favorite Old Testament stories were written by Moses in the wilderness. Luke while traveling, or John while he's in exile on the island of Patmos. 
It was written in different times. David wrote many uh, books and letters during times of war and sacrifice while he's hiding in a cave, running for his life. On the flip of that, his son, King Solomon, writes down these wisdom pieces during times of prosperity and overwhelming peace. It was written in different moods. Some were writing from the heights of joy, right? King David, um, he writes from the splendors of his life and then seasons where he's running in fear of his life. Um, It's written during days of confusion and doubt. And then it just kind of ends with this silent 400 years waiting for a new revelation from God. It was written on three different continents. Think about the power of that. Geographically, three different continents, not different territories, different states, three different huge mass bodies um, of land. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It was written in a wide variety of literary styles, all while keeping a harmonious thread of one single story. Uh, One of the most powerful things about this Bible, the the cover-to-cover overview, is it unfolds one single story. It was the first published book in 1452, and because of its vast literary style, this huge catalog of different types of works like poetry, parable, prophecy, dialogue, personal narrative, biography, autobiography, it's really the mother of literature. Yes. And so it it stems out and creates what we now know as literacy. And we underestimate the power of that in, the, in it telling this one unfolding story. For me, that speaks to its validity on its own. But that's really just skimming the surface, dismantling this um to begin with that, you know, yes, it was, it may have been pinned by man, but it was inspired by God and commanded to be written down by God himself. And we're going to unpack those things, like Tina said, using scripture to really let the Bible prove its own validity. But just on the surface, just the facts about the cover to cover physical uh, text to the document itself, just the facts alone speak volumes. And really, I don't know if many Christians know those facts, let alone non-believers who are contemplating, you know, is this something that was just man's idea? Right. So just to get us started, we thought we'd give a quick overview of what the Bible itself is. And then now, Tina, you're going to walk us through just some some really interesting scriptures to help dismantle and let this let scripture speak for itself. Absolutely. And and thank you, Stacey, that overview, because truly just the the consistency through so much variety, different yeah. literary styles, authors, time periods, geographical locations, that alone speaks to the inspiration of Scripture sure. before we even open the book. Mm-hmm. But as we open the book and begin to look at this objection from the textual standpoint, what does the Bible say about it? Here's really what we have. We've got two options about where we're going to begin here. We are either going to begin with humanistic assumptions, and if we do, then we're going to regard the Bible as a product of imperfect men who are just trying to explain their place in the world. And that's the subjection. It was written by men, Mm -hmm. but that's a humanistic starting point. Or we're going to begin with God, whose revelation of himself is in Scripture, and then our perspective is going to be much different. Because if we begin with God, then we're not seeing man as the source of ultimate understanding and truth. Instead, we're looking to God for meaning, and I certainly would want to find my meaning in God Mm -hmm. and not in finite, flawed men. And if we're looking to God for meaning, 
then we're going to recognize that that meaning is discovered through his inspired Mm -hmm. scriptures. So those are really just our two options. And I would ask you right now just to decide where's your starting point. Are you starting with a perspective that views God as an authority, or are you starting with uh, seeing man as the ultimate authority and source of truth with that humanistic perspective? Certainly in this podcast, we are choosing to see God Mm -hmm. as the source of all truth, and so we're going to go to God's Word and just see, what does the Bible say about the Bible? Because that's how we're dispelling these objections. We can feel a certain way about it, but because we're flawed, finite people— Our feelings are not the source of ultimate truth. And I don't know another text that answers objections about itself within itself thousands of years before the objection was raised. Absolutely. That's such a great point. So we want to look at what does the Old Testament say about Scripture and what does the New Testament say about Scripture. To start us off, I want to just define the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is the 39 books containing God's promises, His covenant laws, His guidance for ancient Israel through history. And this testament of Scripture was to serve as a tutor to lead Mm -hmm. Israel to recognize their need for the coming Messiah. So that's what the Old Testament is. And a great example of what the Old Testament says about Scripture is found in Psalm 119. So we want to go there together and just look at a few verses. This psalm is both the longest chapter in Psalms, and it is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It's composed of 176 verses, and the structure of this psalm is actually um, inspired just its its incredible structure speaks to the inspiration of it. And this gets lost when we translate it into English, but in the original text— In this 176 verses are stanzas of eight lines each, and each of those stanzas begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet in the original language, how this psalm was written. So even like like the structure of the Bible and the intricacy and the variety and the consistency, that speaks to inspiration. Within this single chapter of the Bible, we see um, inspiration just in the structure of how it was written. But then the actual text, what does that say? Well, in these 176 verses, almost every one of them contains a direct reference to Scripture, and it's termed in different ways here. In Psalm 119, the Word of God is called God's law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, ordinances, word, and promise. And some of those words, law, precepts, Mm -hmm. commandments, may sound a little pragmatic, but when you look at the way the psalmist describes these things, then, then these become terms that are passionate and adventurous and captivating because of his standpoint. Where is he beginning? Mm-hmm. He is beginning from a perspective that sees God as the authority and recognizes the beauty and the authority and the inspiration of God's word, even as he's receiving it from the Holy Spirit and writing it down here. So I want to look at just a few things that this author says about Scripture. First of all, this psalmist completely delights in Scripture. Mm -hmm. He declares his love for God's Word over and over again. Verse 47 says, For I delight in your commandments because I love them. Mm -hmm. And not only is he um, adoring and loving the Word of God, it's also inspiring in him a reverent fear. He says in verse 120, my flesh trembles in fear of you. I stand in awe of your laws. 
See, the psalmist recognized the richness of God's word that we also, Mm -hmm. as Bible readers, will begin to discern and even to crave when we commit ourselves to reading the entire thing. I promise you that when you open God's word and you ask God to open your mind and your heart to understand, you're going to become addicted to this because you're going to quickly discover that there is more in -hmm. God's word to take in than you're ever going to be able to consume in your mortal lifetime. So that's why as as Bible users, as as people committed to God's word, we read it, we talk about it, we cross-reference it, we apply it, we use it continually day after day, week after week, year after year, and yet it never loses its power. It never stops transforming our lives as long as we are keeping it open and continuing to read it and use it. Listen to verse 96. To all perfection, I see a limit, Mm -hmm. but your commands are boundless. There the psalmist speaks to this eternal nature of God's word that never stops transforming us. And then he also gives us the invitation in his example to ask God for understanding of his word. Verse 18 says, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. And verse 27 calls me to understand the way of your precepts that I may meditate on your wonderful deeds. This is a devotion, this devotion to God's word, what we're calling you to in this podcast It's pleasing to God. He doesn't want our study of his word to be burdensome or obligatory, but he wants it to continually inform and nourish our love for him. And that is, in fact, exactly what it does. When you commit yourself to it, you are going to find that that you start taking joy in learning the word and in obeying the word. And and that's that's really the call here. We're not asking you to do something to check off a list. We're asking right. you to do something that even if you don't realize it when you start, it's going to change everything for you. Verse 14 says, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. You're not going to find yourself just reading a rule book. You're right. going to find yourself falling in love. And I think that's a part of the objection. It's written by man, so I don't want to submit to man, yes. right? If you're looking at it from the lens of these other objections that we've talked about it uh, about already, it still is a me problem. It's still yes. about who am I submitting to when I read this because there's an understood but silent admission that this is going to bring about a change in me, but it's written by a man, so I don't want to be changed by man. I don't right. want to submit to man. But David is flipping this. And in the scriptures we're about to walk through, he doesn't see this as a rule book. Right. Many times we do see commands, laws, precepts, and we see those, well, this is just, God just doesn't want me to have fun. Right. It's written by man, and I'm not going to submit to a man. But as we move through these next scriptures, check how King David, he, he makes an exchange here for what man identifies as laws or rules or boundaries that yes. that that leave us feeling in want and he trades it for something else. And so as we move through these next scriptures, try to find what he what he's trading here. Yes, he says in verse 45, I walk about in freedom for I have sought your precepts. He saw scripture not as a rule book, but as a source of freedom. He yeah, if if you catch it, he's he is aligning in that stance freedom and precepts. Yes. There's freedom in the rule of God. Right, right. And then he says in verse 144, your statutes are always righteous. Mm -hmm. Give me understanding that I may live. Right. Not only is this a source of freedom, this is the source of life. 
And it comes through righteousness. Yes. He's aligning long life and, and good, free life and righteousness in one thing. And, and we view that as, in our modern culture, well, YOLO, right? You only right. live once. That doesn't. That looks like the freedom to do whatever you want. But he's saying in righteousness, in where I hold myself disciplined, yes, I find life and I find freedom. And it's counter to what we align our freedoms and our living life to the full, right? And the With truth today. is, anyone who has chased down the world and lived for the world and then come to Christ, I'm sure would testify to that, that this is where real life and real freedom is found. And I would love to hear it. Yes. Like if you want to submit those, we would love to hear that. Absolutely. So this chapter, um, while it has a lot to say about the Word of God, Psalm 119, it's not the only thing the Old Testament says. As a matter of fact, this chapter just points us back to the very first chapter of Psalms. Here's how the book opens, Psalm Mm -hmm. 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord Mm -hmm. and who meditates on his law day and night. And hey, that message was not just true for the psalmist. It was not just true in the Old Testament, but Christ's covenant is still the same. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will never pass away. Mm -hmm. So this is just as true for us today. These words are just as authoritative, just as inspired as we read them today in the Old Testament as they were to the Hebrew people as they were receiving the inspiration and writing them down. So that's the Old Testament. The New Testament, though, also has lots of references to teach us about the authority of the New Testament scripture, even as it was being written down. It affirms the inspiration of the apostles' teaching, and the apostles were those who were writing down Mm -hmm. what we now have preserved as the New Testament. And even as they wrote, they spoke to the authority of the writings. So let me just define the New Testament like we began with a definition of the Old Testament. The New Testament is the apostles' teaching in 27 books that reveal a new covenant through Jesus the Messiah and how that covenant was to be lived out in the early church. And one of those apostles who wrote many of the books of the New Testament, Paul, he he debunks yeah. this objection. It was written by a man, really just in two verses, as he's writing to a, a young evangelist who he calls his son in the faith, Timothy. He says this in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I want to point Mm -hmm. out something to you that my friend Dr. Orpheus Hayward points out in his book called God's Word, The Inspiration and Authority of Scripture, a great reference and source here, and we'll give you more information on that at the end. But he points out that we have biblical evidence that Paul recognized both the Old Testament and the New Testament as God-breathed scriptures. When he said all scripture is God-breathed, he was not only referring to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew scriptures, which he would have had in writing on scrolls at this time, but he's speaking also to the New Testament scriptures that we have written down in the Bible today. And here's a proof text that Dr. Hayward points us to. Paul uh, quotes in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, two verses. First, he quotes, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, which is a quote from Deuteronomy 25, 4 in the Old Testament. 
Then he also quotes in that same passage, the worker deserves his wages, which is a quote from Luke 10, verse 7. So he is seeing both Old Testament and New Testament as what he calls God-breathed, mm-hmm. the scriptures, which is authoritative and inspired. So those are just a few passages, both from Old Testament and New Testament, that affirm that that Scripture is not written by man. Right. Scripture is written by God. Now, it might have been written down by man. It was written, actually penned by man, but it was not sourced by man, which is what this objection is saying. It was written by man. No, it was sourced from God, but God gave it to man, and man, the hands and feet, in, in the kingdom, wrote it down so that it could be preserved for us. But how exactly does that process work? Right. That God is the source, the Holy Spirit guides man as he receives the scripture, and then man is used by God to write down the scripture. We don't have to wonder because scripture is so thorough that we even have an answer for that, how that process works. Absolutely. And just to kind of highlight what you said, yes, it was pinned by man, sourced by God, Old Testament and New Testament, these writers didn't pull their thoughts and say, that's a good thought. I'm going to write that down. Right. Um, it's super important that as we read the text, right, if we're just going to read it as a book, yep. that we recognize across literary styles, these are things that they witnessed. Yes. These are things that were retold to them that had been passed down with with impeccable accuracy. Yes. Um, from generation to generation. And so we have to keep that in mind as we move forward through these scriptures. And we're going to begin still in the New Testament. Um, We're going to start in 2 Peter, if you've got um, scripture and you want to turn there. But it's important to keep in mind that these are not a man's thoughts that he decided to write down. Um, So let's start with 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 20 and 21. The Apostle Peter says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, right? It's not his idea. It wasn't what he thought he saw. It was, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Scripture itself affirms the process by which God wrote the Bible down. And I want to just kind of flip us back for just a second to the Old Testament and really unpack where does the Bible first say, uh, write this down? Where is the Bible first referenced in the Bible? Yeah. And it's Exodus chapter 16. And so Moses is commanded by God to write down all that he had witnessed by God um, for the people. And God specifically said it was for one express reason. Exodus 17, verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, then write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of of Amalek under heaven. So God's very first request for a man to write down what he had witnessed God do was to serve two things, to act as a reminder so the people would remember the faithfulness, what God had just done. He had just saved them in a miraculous way from the Amalekites through the strength of his people and on their behalf. So he wanted them to remember and recite it, to be passed down from generations. And then the second time that God tells them to do this It's in the inauguration of what Tina's been talking about, the law, Um, what we feel and view as monotonous and something we may not want to submit to, but to God, 
it was a beautiful moment he wanted written down. Exodus chapter 14, verse 4, it says, Well, we'll back up to verse three. Moses came down and told all of the people the commands of the Lord and all of the ordinances. Then all of the people responded, super important, with one single voice. We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. Verse four, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And then he goes in, this is the law. This is the relationship, the covenant and the promise that allowed man to be in a eternal fellowship friendship with an eternal create, yeah. creating God. And he, they go, they sprinkle the blood, and they inaugurate it, and the people are like, we'll do everything you say, God. But that was the first time it was written down. Yeah. It wasn't just that Moses saw something awesome. He was commanded by God to write it down. Scripture itself affirms the process by which God yes. commanded it to be written down, and that is super important. But just like Tina pointed out, Paul, right there in the, in the, in the New Testament— affirms the authority of Luke's writing when he quotes from the book of Luke in his own book in 1 Timothy. Peter here, he also affirms the authority of Paul's writing just a little bit over in 2 Peter chapter 3. Paul says, uh, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul as wrote as, as our dear brother Paul also wrote with you to you the wisdom that God had given him. He writes in the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Isn't that the truth? Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures, their own destruction. Both Peter and Paul wrote things that can be difficult to understand, But this is the wisdom of God commanded to be written down through the vehicle and the pen of a man, but not not them, right? Peter and Paul, these men or others who wrote down the things that we call the Bible, they had a very specific title and qualification in order to have the authority to write these things down. Just like Moses, God literally said to Moses, write this down, remember it and recite it. He said to Peter and Paul, you guys are my apostles. And here is how he qualified them. Three very important scripturally um, demanding qualifications for an apostle. Also something super important that we want to write down and commit to our hearts because today there are many, many who claim to be an apostle or prophet um, of God and they have revelations that they want to share that may sound like they stand in opposition to what you've heard about Scripture. So this is really important for us to to learn and lean into. Jesus' apostles, meaning ones who are sent, they are identified by Peter in Acts chapter 1. And according to Scripture, an apostle must meet these three qualifications. If any of these three do not exist, they're not an apostle, okay? And heads up, there are no apostles today. Okay, ready? They had, been, they had to be present with the disciples through Jesus' earthly ministry, right? The 12 disciples, they qualify. Yeah. What they wrote down that they witnessed with Jesus, right? How Matthew wrote down the Sermon yes. on the Mount, that is an apostle. That's someone who walked with Jesus physically face-to-face during his earthly ministry. Second qualification, uh, they were personally a witness yeah. to the resurrected Jesus Christ, the disciples all qualify. Jesus right. shows up. He has a meal with them. Later, um, after his um, his resurrection, he meets uh, Paul on the road to Damascus. And now Paul is inaugurated into this apostolic ministry. 
Next, their appointment was confirmed through miraculous signs, wonders, and spiritual gifts, right? So these miracles, these, I think today are where we get a little tricky. And if you are questioning, um, was that a sign, a wonder, or a miracle, right? Revival is a hot topic right now. Signs, wonders, and miracles. Check out 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, Just read the whole thing. The Apostle Paul Um, like we said a second ago, he wasn't with the disciples during Jesus' earthly ministry, but he certainly became a BFF afterwards, right? So uh, Jesus appears to Paul. There's evidence all around, right? Through these signs, wonders, and miracles, he goes to the apostles. He's adopted in, and now we're ready to go. They go to work. They they spread the word, and the world is changed, and the rest is history. But that apostolic ministry died when John died, right? Mm -hmm. It's John. Yeah. The last one. Well, you know, he writes, he writes, well, let me be careful here. He doesn't write revelation. He sure. receives revelation. He is shown the revelation by Jesus who tells him to write, write it this down. down. And then he closes the canon right. with don't add to it and don't take away from it or all the curses described here will be handed to you. Absolutely. And that's super important. So John is no longer here. The apostolic ministry has died, and it's important for us. Um, why? Why is that so critical today? Well, in this objection, it is well worth opening up this conversation because we're really questioning if we're going to submit to the authority of, of man, right? Humanity, who we feel wrote this document. These men were qualified in a super specific way. Today, that's not the case, but why is that so critical? Because as the New Testament church, as followers of Jesus Christ, what do we hold on to? What do, I mean, we could actually call this text, this whole New Testament, the apostles' teaching, Yes. right? And we don't, we call it the New Testament. But here, here's, here's why this is important. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the church is born, the Holy Spirit is, is um, readily available, and it says, they, the first Christians— who are, we could certainly insert ourselves as today's Christians. They, the first Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. But what were the apostles' teachings? This whole New Testament. Right. The letters written down by the apostles and the uh, co-workers in the kingdom, what they saw God do and what they witnessed that they were able to do on behalf of birthing the church, they wrote it down. And so what we read today is exactly what they were reading and writing down at the birth of the church. So the Apostle Paul also affirmed Old Testament scripture as writings for the instruction of the New Covenant Church. Um, In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, after recounting the Israelites' journey out of bondage in Egypt and through the wilderness, Paul says this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 and 12. These things happened to them, them being the Israelites, as an example, and they were written down. Why? Because God, that's what that was God's idea, right. right? We found that already. They were written down as a warning for us, on whom the culmination, the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think that you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So not only did the first time we read that God wants his words written down, it was to be a, a, a something to help them remember, yeah. right? Paul recounts that. Yes, these things happened yeah. to them, and they were written down as a warning 
to you and to us, right. us Christians who are alive in present day, that happens to be the end of days. These are warnings to us. Um, and so when we when we look at scripture, if we move in in the seat of this was written by a man whose authority I don't want to submit to, we've already started wrong. These were written down according to God to serve as warnings, as ways for us to remember his faithfulness yes. and his saving acts to be in fellowship with his people, but also to remember all of the ways that we can fall away from him and all of the desperate acts he has done to remain in relationship with us and not just an earthly relationship. The point of the covenant, of the promises, of the law, of the contract, of the I'll do this so we can do this together is because this is eternal. This is an eternal opportunity uh, for us and God gives us every single sign to make it into that relationship, but it's only in this book. Right. And and so this book, Old Testament to New, affirms within itself the inspiration, the authority, the validity of it. Mm-hmm. That's contained in the Bible. So we've looked at just this overview of the structure of the Bible, just what a unique document that it mm-hmm. is that speaks to its authority and inspiration internally. Its own words speak to its authority and inspiration. But let's move one step further now and talk about how did we get it, though? How is it right. in our hands today, these 66 books that we recognize as these Holy Spirit-inspired and authoritative scriptures why are those the 66? So I want to just take a walk through history for a few minutes here. The word canon, uh, we would use that to describe the list of the 66 authoritative and inspired books. Mm-hmm. That word didn't start out meaning list. It started out meaning standard if we go back a little further. And so just keep that in mind as we talk about the canon. It was first the standard and now it's the list. Mm-hmm. But by the time the church was born that Stacy talked about in Acts chapter 2, where already they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, this very first group of Christians. But on that day that the church was born, on the day of Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 2, the Old Testament was already in effect. It was already a recognized uh, standard of Old Testament canon a standard of Holy Spirit-inspired authoritative writings. And then with the establishment of Christianity, that Old Testament canon began to just be read as related to Jesus and interpreted in reference to him, but it already existed. So there weren't still people trying to figure out what are the Old Covenant-inspired authoritative writings. That was closed. Mm -hmm. That was in effect. Now, what happened is these writings were translated into Greek. That's the translation that we call the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. And when that happened, there were some other books that were accepted into the canon in the Greek translation. And many Christians accepted those books, most of them intertestamental books, accounts of what happened during that 400-year period of silence between Malachi and Matthew. And the Roman Catholic Church began to recognize those books as canonical also. We as Protestant 
Christians, as evangelical Christians, we don't recognize sure. those. We adhere to the Jewish Old Testament, which is why our Old Testament that, that Stacy has in this Bible in her lap right now is the exact same Old Testament that the Christians on the day of Pentecost would have recognized. The same that Jesus adored. Yes. And read from himself. Absolutely. So that has not changed. That's the Old Testament. We've had it for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So... What about the New Testament, though? That's a little different, and it was marked by some stages that I would like to go through with you here. The first stage is when the church operated with the Scripture principle. So the idea here is that the teachings of Jesus Christ and of the apostles, and again, we've specifically defined what is an apostle. Mm -hmm. When the teachings of Jesus Christ himself and the apostles were put into writing, the scripture principle says they carried the same authority as they had when they were verbally spoken. So what Jesus said was written down exactly by writers who were carried by the Holy Spirit. And when that was written down, it could be read in the assembly and carry the same authority as if Jesus himself were standing in the church assembly and delivering those words. Same thing with the apostles' writings. Paul, as he preached, we have accounts of him preaching one night. He preached until late in the night, and somebody got so tired they fell, fell asleep, the fell out the window and died. <laughs> they brought, brought him, him back, back to, to life. life and kept on preaching. Because right? he was an apostle. Right. That's right. And he, so he could do that, right? That was a mark of an apostle, <laughs> miraculous signs and wonders. You put somebody to sleep in your sermon and they die, you can bring them back. But Paul's words, when they were written down, carried the same authority as right. they did when he spoke them, because the message didn't change. The writers were moved by the Holy Spirit and penned the exact words that God desired for the church to hear and to heed. So that's the scripture principle, was this process of writing down the orally delivered words of both Christ and the apostles, and the authority did not change from oral delivery to written delivery. I want to pause and just maybe interject one thought here. It kind of lends to the weight of teachers and preachers as they yeah. as they use scripture as they teach scripture but to remember that the authority is in the scripture and so in this objection if you've seen it mishandled and you're unsure right then read it for read it yourself right. Because it's the written text. It has the authority. It is the same authority as if Jesus were sitting in front of you and saying his words directly to you. And you obviously we sit under the word of God and we adore sitting under the word of God. But having that one-on-one conversation with Jesus is terribly important. And so just know when you're reading it, even by yourself, the authority is still there. It's still Jesus. It's still God speaking directly to you. Yeah, which speaks to that boundlessness that we read about in Psalm chapter 119. If Jesus Christ is sitting with me and speaking to me, that never gets old. Sure. That never loses its power. Well, he is. Mm -hmm. He is through his word. And that was the understanding from the very beginning of the church. Mm -hmm. But that was phase one, this scripture principle in effect. The next phase of development of the New Testament is when we talk about the canon principle. So this was the recognition that many things were being written down, but only certain writings carried the inspiration that would cause us to say those are Holy Spirit-inspired those are authoritative. And we're going to talk in just a minute about what those qualifiers were. But the idea here was that lots of things were written down. Not everything was scripture. Not everything was canon. Because again, 
Some things may be written by man, but when we talk about the Word of God, we're talking mm-hmm. about what was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So sure. during this stage, there was a defined set of books, but that was still taking shape as the apostles were teaching, as writings were being uh, handed down and written and, and and put together. So in a sense, this was a time of an open canon, Yeah. although that sounds like a contradiction to us if canon is is a closed list. But again, canon started by meaning standard. So this is kind of when the standard is being set, if that makes sense. It does. It's th- We're walking through how did this come to be, right? Yes. What is the integrity behind the choices made to build this set of books? Right. And so there had to be a period where they were still determining this we'll accept this, we won't accept that based on the right. qualifiers of scripture. Right. Until we close it and say it's completed. Right. And then that's the third phase. The third and final phase is the closed canon. So in the fourth century, by which time we had this closed canon, that's when the definition of this word changed from standard to the list of authoritative books. Now, because of this, there are some scholars who claim that the church didn't have a canon until the fourth, the third, or the fourth century, but the church did, did have a canon. It wasn't closed until the third century, but the church did have, um, they did have this standard of inspired scriptures, just like we said, the Old Testament, that was done on the day that the church was formed. And then the standard existed very early, and it followed these qualifications of an apostle, Mm -hmm. which is why it's important that we understand that. It wasn't called canon at the time. Prior to the third century, uh, we would have referred to the covenantal writings. There was the Old Covenant writings and the New Covenant writings, which today we call the Old and New Testament, have them there together, and that is the closed canon. And that's this third phase of development, which is the third and fourth century, where canon now means these books and no others are recognized as authoritative. That's our closed canon. So how were they recognized? Let's talk about that. We have um, a list of qualifiers that we can refer back to that dates back to the second century. It's called the Muratorian Fragment, and it gives the standards. And I want to make sure you understand this, not the standards as to how the decision should be made. Sure. This list was made after the fact to describe the standards by which the inspiration was evident. Mm-hmm. In, in the closing of the canon. So I want to just go through six factors from that Muratorian fragment that dictate how was the canon closed? Mm-hmm. How was the, how did the list become this, or how did the standard become the list? Right. So number one was inspiration. That was a precondition of canonicity, which relates to the second thing, which is apostolicity. Right. The idea that the book had to come from apostolic times, which is why it's very important what Stacy said, that that was an age that existed and came to an end. Right. Because if it didn't, then, then if I am claiming apostolicity today, Here's really biblically what I'm saying. My words are equal to this, right. and that's false. My my thoughts and my opinions of things, right. my interpretation of life and right. and you and and your whole being, yeah, is equal to this, right? Because that's the level at which these men were speaking, and it it's probably the case that 
the the throwing around of the word apostle carelessly mm-hmm. is what's led many to this objection. Absolutely. It's written by man because mm-hmm. we're lowering the bar for what defines inspiration mm-hmm. and apostolicity. But that was a qualifier for a book to be in the canon is that it came from apostolic times and it was written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle like Luke. Another requirement was antiquity. Again, this corresponds with apostolicity. Why? Because that was an age that existed in the first century Mm -hmm. and not afterwards, and a writing could not even be considered for the canon if it were not from that age. So antiquity also figured into this. A fourth qualification was applicability to the whole church. So another way to say this is Catholicity, because the word Catholic simply means universal. So for a writing to be in the canon, it had to be useful to the universal church, the big C church, we call it, even if it was written for a specific church. Mm -hmm. A great example of this is 1 Corinthians. There, Paul writes instructions to a church that's experiencing very specific problems internally, and yet he gives teachings that are useful to all congregations, even if their uh, problems, their internal struggles look different than the church at Corinth. Mm-hmm. A fifth qualifier was that the writing had to be read in the church. It was used in the general assembly of the church from the time of the apostles to be considered for the canon. And the sixth qualifier was it had to contain right doctrine. So the book Mm -hmm. had to be in full agreement Mm -hmm. with the apostles' message, including all the historical works with God's saving work that he accomplished in Jesus, his virgin birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his coming again in judgment. And all of that had to be presented in a Trinitarian context, relating the work of Christ— to God the Father as the Creator, and to the Holy Spirit who prophesied the coming of Christ and who is still today at work in His church. I think Hebrews is an incredible yes. example of that. You yes. don't know who the writer is, so you can't say with certainty that right. it's an apostle, but it nails that right doctrine. Absolutely. It is in such beautiful harmony. That's one of the the main spaces where we come to understand the fulfillments of all that were all shadowed of those pieces, in the absolutely. Old Testament. So here's the point. The church, the early church, recognized the canon. It didn't create the canon. And I think that's the idea behind this objection of it was written by man. Oh, this was written down by man. It was just put together by people in the church. No, the the language of the early writers, the earliest texts we see is that these were the things, the writings that were handed down to us. This was what we received, a process like Stacy described. And so the church's accepting that canon was not an act of authority over Scripture. It was an act of submission Mm -hmm. to the Scripture. So as we recognize the church's role in recognizing the canon, we're not saying that the church had authority over the canon, but rather that the church submitted itself to the authoritative and inspired writings that were recognized in the Old Testament from the day the church was birthed and that were recognized very early in the life of the church that existed in the first century in that apostolic time where these writings were received from the Holy Spirit and put into writing that carried the same authority as it had when it was spoken from them directly. And I think we may have said this in the beginning, but I think for most of these objections, we sort of assumed most of the individuals listening and maybe following along are Christians or Bible users as we've defined before. 
But so if that is the case, if you're listening and you are a Christian and a Bible user, I hope that you will hear this and go, wow, I have a I have underscored what I have several copies of at my house. Yeah. Um, I hope that you you look at this and and I'm I'm willing to bet there are many Christians who are in services every Sunday who love God and who want to serve Jesus but you just don't know this. You don't right. know how all of this came to be. You don't know how to engage in a conversation when someone says, well, the, well, men just cherry-picked what they wanted it to say anyway. Right. And you don't know what to say because maybe you don't recognize how awesome this really is and how intricate and how powerful and how inspired it truly yeah. is. So I hope that you listen and at, by the end of this, you're as pumped up about it. Yes. This is better than a, like, it's called a cannon, but I mean, this is better than like the biggest bomb you could ever get. That's it. That's you know? it. Yes. It's and way more powerful. You know what? My guess is that those who would carelessly throw that objection out, that they don't know these things either. I would 100% agree. And I think that's why we had to, we had to start with humility, understanding, and grace, yeah. because you just don't know and we talked about this last week, I think, what a tragedy to not know, to live a whole life and not know the beautiful things and the the life that you can find between two covers. Yes. Um, man, what a tragedy it is not to know that. So I hope you're as inspired as this is to get into it and read yes. the whole thing from start to finish. Absolutely. We've covered a lot of information today. I want to leave you with one more source that you can go to. We've quoted a little bit from it today in this episode. But again, my friend, Dr. Orpheus Hayward, he has a great book that he's written called God's Word, The Inspiration and Authority of Scripture. Uh, This is a book that you can read on your own. You can use it in a Bible study setting. There's a small group that meets in my home right now that's going through this book. It's an excellent study, and it's also a Renew resource. You can get it at renew.org slash books, or it's available on Amazon. So we highly recommend that. And again, our goal in this podcast is just to develop biblical literacy and see lives transformed by the power of God's Word through your committing yourself to reading the whole thing. It can feel like a big task. As we've seen today, this is a big book. Mm -hmm. A lot has gone into it, uh, but we want to help you with that. And I'll have a resource that's coming out to assist you with that on May the 19th. It's called Step Into Scripture, also a Renew resource that will be available both on Amazon and at renew.com slash books. So thank you so much for joining us. We're going to get back together next week and talk about one more objection that strikes at the validity of the text, but we're going to find that like every objection to reading the whole Word of God, it's no good. We're going to throw it right out. So we'll see you back here then. See ya.